We thank you for the privilege of worship. You have given us the opportunity to come to you and to give you the praise that is yours. You are glorious and above all things, and we love you, Lord, with all our heart. This morning in this place, may our worship be committed, committed to serving you and living a life that would honor you. May we walk in this world as you would have us, that the example that we give to others is that God is love. And God is forgiveness, that God cares. Help us to be that light that you've designed us to be, that we might love you first, love one another, and love this world. For you have given yourself. May we give gladly and freely. In Jesus' name, amen. He looked to be only about four or five years old, but he was making quite a scene. His mother looked embarrassed, and from the tone of her voice, she was feeling helpless. Those of us who were aware of what was happening felt uncomfortable as we watched the drama play out before us. As they walked through the store, this small boy was quite vocally talking back to his mother. When she said it was time to go, he refused and threw a tantrum. When she tried to get him to leave, he started calling her names. When she tried to take his hand, it quickly escalated and he began kicking her. And as they slowly made their way to the exit, he continued to berate and hit his mother while she did nothing to stop him. It was clear who was in control of that relationship as this mother seemed to have abdicated her role as parent. And that's an extreme example, but perhaps you've seen something similar because, unfortunately, scenes like that have become all too common. Popular writer and speaker on family and parenting, John Roseman, wrote, Our society has come to believe that it is wrong to make a child feel bad, and the parent's role is to affirm and please their child. For some, it seems being their child's friend and having them like them has become more important than being their parent. And as our our society continues to redefine love in terms of feelings and emotions rather than commitments, and tolerance and acceptance become primary virtues, we can become less discerning, more concerned with hurting other people's feelings and what they may think about us than what is necessary or true or right. And as difficult as it can be, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is say no to someone or to set limits. Without boundaries, anything goes and compromise becomes the order of the day. And what is true for parents is just as true in the church. When our primary concern is to make people comfortable, feel good, and be happy, we may find we are compromising with the world. When we're less concerned with what God has said to us 
than what the world may think of us, we are compromising our faith. Jesus warned, beware when all men speak well of you. That's what was happening in the church at Pergamum, the third church addressed in the book of Revelation. It was a church without boundaries. And I see Lorna's not here today, and we usually pull up pictures for her because she enjoys that. Uh, but go ahead, Bryce, put, put up the first one. It was the more northernmost of the seven churches addressed. But it was a church caught in the middle, trying to love both God and the world, trying to serve him while seeking the approval and acceptance of those around him, them. And so in that letter in Revelations chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write this, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, as is the case for each message to the churches in seven churches in Revelation, the letter to the church in Pergamum follows the same pattern. The first line focuses on a particular aspect of Christ, which becomes the basis for the message which is to follow. Then comes a commendation for what they're doing right, followed by a condemnation for what they're doing wrong, and finally concluded with a promise of what will happen if they respond. The basis of the message is found in verse 12. For the Ephesians, it was a church that seemed to have almost everything. He was said to be the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the seven lampstands. In other words, he's the one that holds the church, the people of God in his hand. And when we forsake our first love, which is the prime motivator for faith, we're in danger of becoming little more than a social clique instead of a true church. And so Jesus said, beware or our candle will be removed among the candlesticks. And while the church in Smyrna may not have had everything, in Jesus they had everything they needed. So he's the first and the last. He's the creator and king who became the servant to suffer along with them. He's the one who died and came to life again, who went through the worst that life has to offer and came out victorious. Therefore, Jesus told the church he understands what they're going through. He knows what you're going through, and he stands with you. Now to the church at Pergamum, a church without boundaries, he says he is the one with the sharp, double-edged sword. The sword is judgment the standard by which he is to hold the nation 
and the church and individuals accountable. Four times in the book of Revelations, in the first chapter, the second chapter, and twice in the 19th chapter, the sword is said to come from his mouth. It's the sword of his word, not people's opinions by which he judges our lives. In Hebrews 4, it tells us about the purpose of the sword of his word when it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. For nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Unlike parents who may be afraid to tell their child no because it might upset them, God does set boundaries. There are some things about which he says no, don't, stop. And his concern in doing that isn't to keep us happy, but what is really in our best interest. We don't set the parameters aside because it makes us feel uncomfortable. The sword God uses to pierce the darkness of our lives and expose sin is his word. And its location here at the beginning of this letter tells us the message to the church at Pergamum is based upon God's word. It's calling them to live up to his standards. After that, in verse 13, comes the commendation for what they're doing right. I know, it says, where you live, where Satan himself has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. The church in Smyrna faced opposition and persecution, primarily initiated by a large Jewish population there, which is why it refers to a synagogue or gathering of Satan. At Pergamum, the opposition wasn't just from a group, but it came from society at large, living in what is referred to as the center of Satan's power. Ephesus was the first in trade. Smyrna was the first in beauty. Pergamum, called the greatest city of Asia Minor, was first overall. The ancient Roman scholar and historian Pliny called it the most fam- by far the most famous city of Asia. It was first in education. At the time of John's writing, it was like the Boston of Asia Minor, the center of learning in that part of the world. It got that distinction primarily from its library with over 200,000 parchments, which except for the library in Alexandria in Egypt, it was unsurpassed in the world. In the 3rd century B.C., Eumenides, their king, tried to pass even Alexandria when he persuaded Aristophanes, the head librarian in Alexandria, to come to Pergamum. At that time, scrolls and writing materials were made from papyrus. And when Ptolemy, the pharaoh in Egypt, found out about it, he did what he believed would put an end to such ambition. He put an embargo on the export of papyrus. And so the scholars at Pergamum came up with their own solution. And they developed their own material for writing on, made from animal skins. It was called the Pergameni sheet, or Pergameni charta, from which we get the word parchment. There in the midst of learning was a church facing pressure to compromise in order to be accepted. 
To be true to God's word meant that they were facing certain derision by those who considered themselves the cultural elite. And yet Paul had warned the cross is foolishness to the world and those who want to appear educated. While historically in the West, it's been the church that has been the advocate for learning, most colleges and universities were started as Christian schools because they believed that the more you know about creation, the more you know about the Creator. Unfortunately, in more recent times, they're often seen at odds, sometimes almost a contempt among scholars for those who hold faith. In a center of learning like that, that's what the church was facing. But Pergamon was also first in power, the capital city of the region. It's where the Roman governor made his home. It was the political administrative center for the region, the seat of Roman power, the principal overseer of culture. Nothing and no one could go through the region without first going through Pergamon. You know, faith and power don't usually play nicely together. Because faith calls for an allegiance to a higher power, while politics and power demand compromise with the world, to give first allegiance to the state, not to faith. And here was a church finding itself with no power as outsiders to the workings of society. And so one of the pressures for them was not just a compromise to be accepted by the cultural elite, but it was to blur the distinctions, to compromise on those issues which society found distasteful, which made them powerless. Its influence was also a Pergamum, not just from first in learning and power, but first in religion. It was the center of pagan worship, an eclectic series with various religions standing side by side, each accepting the other as just one more God, one more truth, one more way. They had five major temples in Pergamum. One to Athena, the goddess of wisdom and the arts. One to Dionysus, the god of wine. One to, and I can never pronounce their name right, Asclepios, who was the god of medicine. People came to Pergamum from all over the ancient world to visit the temples and priests of this, what was called the Pergamese god, the god of healing. Represented by, and can, I know I skipped a couple of rice, but represented by the snake, wrapped around a snake, stick, which is still the symbol for medicine today. Here, they had the closest thing to hospitals in the first century. And so, Asclepius was worshipped and called the Savior. Savior for healing. Savior not just for physical healing, but they believed many of them for spiritual healing. Greatest of all the temples, though, at Pergamum, was the temple and altar of Zeus. And go ahead and bring that one up. Zeus, whom they referred to as Sotor Zeus, or Zeus the Savior. The altar was shaped like a giant throne in honor of the battle of the giants celebrating the Greek god's victory over the gods of chaos. This altar... Is, was considered or is considered one of the greatest achievements of ancient sculpture. It's now located in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. They took it apart piece by piece and rebuilt it there. 
The city had a long history of celebrating their various rulers, calling them both gods and saviors. So they also built a temple to Caesar. As one commentator said, the city was a rabid promoter of the imperial cult. Imagine being a believer, walking through the streets daily, hearing Zeus referred to a savior, referring to Caesar referred to as savior, hearing the other gods referred to as their savior. In such a setting, to refuse to bow and confess Caesar as Lord and offer the sacrifice was high treason. So the pressure was to compromise, to water things down, to make them more acceptable. It's okay to believe anything you want. There are many paths to God. Just accept mine also. As Erwin Lutzer, pastor of the historic Moody Church in Chicago, pointed out, the God of cultural America is as tolerant as a TV talk show host, as loving as a doting parent, and as irrelevant as last year's calendar. And it was here in the center of learning and power and religion that Jesus tells the church Satan has made his throne. How difficult it would have been to live out their Christian faith. The danger here really wasn't so much persecution, but compromise. Temptation to enter into an unholy alliance with these forces to find acceptance. But then that's always been true. The danger to faith and the life of believers is often not so much man and persecution, but rather the temptation to compromise, to lose our primary motivation for faith that Jesus is unique, that he is the way, the truth, and the source of life, and apart from him, there is no other. And so he stands, pictured as the one with the double-edged sword, the sword of God's standard by which he holds us accountable to discern what is good and right. And so Jesus commends the church, you remain true. You didn't renounce your faith, even in a setting like that. It's possible to remain faithful at such times. We are called to remain faithful regardless of our circumstances. To not think, well, if only things were different, then I could. God calls us to be faithful where we are. He who is faithful with little, Scripture says, will be faithful with much. After the... Compliment comes the complaint. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, if you had, want, had to sum up the complaint against them, it would simply be moral compromise. The church, by and large, had remained true and faithful. Their official teaching and doctrines were good. Their faith was real. Their love was true. But they were very accepting of people who might have different ideas. Living in the center of toleration, they began to compromise with the world. Being in an enlightened city which prized education, they became accepting of other viewpoints. Center of power, they became accepting 
to do things to get ahead. Being in the center of religious diversity, there was pressure to accept the beliefs of these other views. You know, in 1871, there was an American named Heinrich Schleiman. He began excavating an ancient city in Turkey. To the amazement of many, this retired businessman discovered the lost city of Troy. You can still find its ruins of its towers and walls, walls which were 16 feet thick. According to Homer's Iliad, the Greeks besieged Troy for 10 years without success. And then after the death of the warrior Achilles, many wanted to give up that fight. 10 years lost. But Odysseus, the king of Ithaca, came up with the plan that we all remember the Trojan horse leaving it at city gates with hidden soldiers inside so that the, it seemed that they left the region and yet at night they snuck back in and the gates were opened and they defeated the city. But the story of Troy is the story of Pergamum. It was a city of letting down their guard, allowing compromise to come in, allowing change to happen without even an awareness of it with the pressures to compromise, to be accepted, they allowed it, says, the teachings of Balaam. If you remember your Old Testament history, Balaam was a prophet from Midian. It's found in Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. Balak, the king, had called him in to curse the Hebrews for him, and he offered to pay him whatever he wanted. But instead, God had him bless the people of Israel three times. But Balaam apparently still wanted the reward from the king, and so he made a suggestion to the king that the way to defeat Israel wasn't to attack them directly, but subvert and corrupt their morals, get them to compromise their values. The way to defeat the people of God was to sever them from the source of their strength, to compromise their values the things that set them apart in the first place. And so Balaam's name became a byword in Israel for moral compromise. And here, Jesus said, you've allowed that teaching into the church to compromise. You've also allowed in the teachings of the Nicolaitans and not sure really who they were or what they taught. Most seem to believe that it was an early form of Gnosticism which said the flesh didn't matter, what you did with your body didn't matter because it's going to be destroyed. What matters is your spirit, so live as you want. Do as you please. Led to immorality. And while most didn't agree with it or practice these teachings, they accepted it in their midst. And so they faced the condemnation here. Jesus stands with the sharp, double-edged sword, challenging his church to stand for something to be true to his word. You know, I had a friend who was a child psychologist. One day he was talking about a woman who had come to see him. And this woman was having trouble with her son. And she said, he just won't listen to me. I'm not able to control him. And as they talked, it became obvious to my friend that the problem was that this mother had given her son everything he wanted, whenever he wanted it. When asked why, why didn't you simply tell the boy no sometimes? The mother said, because he might cry. My friend's immediate response was, so? So what if he cries? 
Sometimes in the name of love, we have to set boundaries. Because we don't want to deal with difficulties and discipline, we can give in. And yet God disciplines, Scripture says, those he loves. He sets boundaries for us. And as believers, sometimes we need to do the same based upon God's word. Are we sometimes more concerned about being accepted by the world than by God? Letting things in our life, the programs we watch, the activities we participate in, allowing them because we want to find acceptance or be tolerant of those who may be different. And we need to be loving and caring of others. But still, we are called to live by a higher standard for ourselves. Because as Jesus said, a little yeast works through a whole batch of dough. And if we compromise in the little things, in the end, we'll compromise in the big things. So his warning to the church at Pergamum was, don't compromise with the world. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves fighting against God himself in his word. And Jesus promises, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who overcome, he will give some hidden manna, bread from heaven, and give them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. God doesn't compromise his standards even at the cost of his own son. That's the cross. God's refusal to say, well, believe whatever you like, I'll love you and accept you anyway. But says, here's my love for you. He opens wide his arms of acceptance and invitation. Will you join me in prayer? Father, as we close today, we thank you that you do have a standard for us that sometimes we struggle with. And yet help us to be true to who you are, to your nature, your character, your very being, God. We thank you for your grace that calls us forward and for your word to provide those boundaries and those standards that we know we can live by because they are from you. We thank you, Lord. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided.